Welcome back to the Rethinking Scripture podcast. This is Greg Hall, and you've tuned in to episode 77. It's the Jubilee Jesus. And while we have probably several different examples of the use of Jubilee within modern society, I suspect that there are some of you that don't really understand the full connection that the word Jubilee has to the biblical text. So today, that's what we're going to be diving into, and I'm glad you're here. I am glad that you made the choice to invest some time with the Jubilee Jesus. You may not know it, but over the past few episodes, I've been slowly walking through some of the content of my book, Rethinking Rest. And in that process, I've been very careful not to just repeat information that's already printed. Rather, I've been picking topics and expanding my study in ways that I didn't choose to do in the book. So just walking back a few episodes, it was in episode 71, 72, and 73, and those were in progression, Remember the Great Cessation, Religious False Dilemmas, and Ancient Cosmology and Divine Rest. All three of those episodes expand upon content that is covered in chapter one of Rethinking Rest. So that's 71, 72, 73. Then we got to 74, which was Easter and the cultic calendar. That expands on some of the content in chapter two of the book. And then episodes 75 and 76, most recently, the ancient perspectives on the image of God and C.S. Lewis and his Platonic Christianity, both of those expand upon topics found in chapter three. And it's in today's episode that we will venture into some of the content found in chapter four. That chapter is all about Jesus and his ministry. And just to preview, moving forward, we're going to continue through all the chapters of the book, and then I think I'd like to go back to just studying the book of the Bible after that. And I've got an idea already, but in the meantime, if you've got any suggestions, just go to the RethinkingScripture.com website, click on the Connect tab, and you can let me know if you have any preferences on where we head after we're done walking through the content of the Rethink and Rest book. So what's coming up? Uh, Episode 78 next, we're going to be talking about what Jesus meant when he said that he was Lord of the Sabbath. Quite a bold statement, to be sure. After that, uh, we'll take a look at what it means to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus said it's okay to do good on the Sabbath. We're going to dive into that and look at that a little more practically than maybe you've done in the past. And then we've got two episodes, maybe three, on Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. And I've talked about Hebrews 3 and 4 quite a bit uh, just over different episodes. Uh, We're going to dive into just the theology that's being presented in that argument in those two chapters and how that relates to the overall theology of rest that the Bible presents. So that's a little preview. We've gone back a little bit. I've given you some context as to what in the world we're doing on this podcast. 
And I can't wait to dive into today's episode and the content about Jubilee Jesus. Well, to get us started today, we're actually going to be kind of laying some groundwork uh, because even though you may be familiar with the term Jubilee, you might not understand how Jubilee, that concept, fits into an overall theology that the Bible presents. So we're not only going to help define the term of Jubilee for you, but we're going to look at some of the instances in the Old Testament, how it fits into theology and things of that nature. It's in chapter two of Rethinking Rest that I lay out uh, a suggestion on how you can look at the different reminders of rest that the Old Testament Mosaic Law presents. And just to go through those quickly again, the Old Testament Law, the Mosaic Law, starts with this idea of a seventh-day Sabbath. That's the fourth commandment. That's kind of the introduction within the law of this idea of rest. And it's, it's a prompt, not to something new or something in and of itself, but it's a prompt, that fourth commandment is, to remember the original day of ceasing, the seventh day of creation. And we've gone over that in previous episodes. But within the Mosaic Law, that's not the end of this idea of rest. In fact, it expands. And so I argue that it expands eventually into additional Sabbath days, not associated with the seventh day cycle, but rather associated with festivals. So in Leviticus 23, you've got four spring feasts and seven fall feasts. Each of those feasts have Sabbath days that are additional to the weekly Sabbath associated with them. So you start out with one day a week. On a regular rotation, you add several different points throughout the year with additional Sabbath days. And then the idea of rest or this theology of rest progresses to eventually be a sabbatical year. One whole year where certain things happen that are different and out of the ordinary, uh, specifically not planting crops in that year just allowing what's there naturally to come up. And again, this is a reminder back to a time when the work of planting had been done by God in a garden. And it was the job just of the humans to allow God to do that portion of the work and to cultivate and keep it. So the sabbatical years, by the way, uh, rarely, if ever, actually practiced within the land of Israel as you go through the Old Testament. And it was the idea of every seventh year that obviously mimicked the every seventh day practice, but expanded it to a year. You see this theology getting bigger and expanding. And eventually, the book of Leviticus describes this crazy year that was supposed to happen once every 50 years, and it was called the year of Jubilee. So what does Jubilee mean exactly? Just a strict definition, if you look it up online out of uh, here is what, dictionary.com, it defines Jubilee as a special anniversary of an event, especially one celebrating 25 or 50 years of a reign or an activity. Those would be called Jubilee celebrations. 
So the idea or the concept has gone into secular society, but when you go into the Bible and ask the same question, you get a little more specific rendition of what that refers to. And so from a biblical standpoint, Jubilee or the year of Jubilee really is a special year in Jewish law for resetting some economic standings, especially related to returning property to ancestral holdings. How is it also referred to? Well, this will play into today's episode. It's also referred to as the favorable year of the Lord, sometimes the Feast of Jubilee, the Jubilee year, or the Sabbaths of years. And we'll get into maybe definitions in a little more specificity in the second half of today's episode. But that, I think, at least lays a groundwork for you, knowing that uh, this is a biblical concept, that's where the idea started, and then it's also worked its way into our modern secular culture in different ways. And while Jubilee is introduced to us in the Old Testament, in that Mosaic law context, and then with several different references through some of the prophets. My argument is, from a Old Testament law standpoint, the year of Jubilee is the culmination of rest theology. So as we think about the topic of rest, in other words, from an Old Testament standpoint, what we should see is a continuum, connected points on a continuum that's ever-expanding. And it begins with one day a week, and then additional days added to the calendar, and then a whole year every seventh year, and then this crazy reset year of Jubilee every 50th year. It's the culmination. The Jubilee year is the end of rest theology in the Old Testament. And it was that continuum that was supposed to be practiced in a land of rest, in the land of Israel. And all of those ideas are interconnected and cannot be separated from an Old Testament standpoint. And that's important because (laughs) that's not what we do. (laughs) We totally separate those ideas. I mean, you might have certain opinions about what the Seventh-day Sabbath might be and how we should interact with that today. But once I start talking about, let's say, sabbatical years or the year of Jubilee— What we do in our modern mindset is totally disconnect those ideas from each other because we see the Seventh-day Sabbath as something that God is maybe still calling us to in some form or rendition, but we don't associate the year of Jubilee with anything that we're still held responsible for. This is oftentimes the way it's interpreted within modern theologies. But what's interesting is when we slip into the New Testament, this idea of rest is revisited. And I've argued that probably the most significant New Testament passage on rest is the discussion in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. Like I said, we've got episodes coming up where we will dive deep into those two chapters. But the Gospels also include several references to this concept. But in our modern-day search for clarity on the meaning and practice of rest, we just often land in the wrong passages. We often focus on the seventh-day Sabbath fights that Jesus had with the Pharisees. Uh, We ask questions like, what type of work can be done on the Sabbath? We wonder what pulling sheep out of pits might mean to us in the modern-day sense, or picking grain in a field. Those are all disputes 
that Jesus had with the Pharisees. And we tend to focus on things like that. But we need to remember that in the Old Testament progression of this idea of rest, the seventh day Sabbath is where the theology begins. It's not where it ends. And the Jubilee is that end. It's the end of the road of Sabbath theology. And there's one passage in Luke chapter 4 that describes what Jesus thinks about the Jubilee. And that's what we'll be focusing on for the remainder of the episode. And as we talk about that, just remember, within a biblical worldview, one day of physical rest is not the end goal. It never really was. The end of the theological progression of rest is the liberty to work and live as we were created to do. It's the freedom to answer only to the God who created the true function and order of the cosmos. And we should not be surprised that Jesus claimed to be the fulfillment of that concept. Well, let's dive into Luke chapter 4 and uh, this idea of Jubilee. And for the remainder of the episode, I'm going to be relying fairly heavily on an article out of the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. It was written by Christopher R. Bruno, and the title of the article is Jesus is Our Jubilee. But how? The Old Testament background and Lukean fulfillment of the ethics of Jubilee. It was written back in 2010. I've also got some links I'll put in the show notes to the specific article so you can read it in its entirety because we'll only be actually interacting with a portion of the whole article. And I've also got a link that I'll include that tells a little bit more about the author, Christopher R. Bruno. Bruno begins by commenting about, like some of the comments we made at the beginning of this episode, in the contemporary Christian church, he says, one does not need to look far to find references to the biblical jubilee. Uh, he got his PhD from Wheaton, so he says, on the campus of Wheaton College, the World Christian Fellowship sponsors a yearly jubilee week in which students are challenged to think globally about the world Christian movement of their organization. He says a branch of a local charitable organization is called the Jubilee Furniture Company, <laughs> and an internet search will lead one to the Jubilee Christian Church, the Jubilee Christian Academy, and even the Jubilee Water Park and Resort. And I'll just add that here in Salem, Oregon, where I live, we've got a church called the Jesus Our Jubilee Church. So this has become somewhat of a fairly common thing. The use of Jubilee, sometimes within extra-biblical organizations and contexts. And Bruno is going to suggest that this idea of Jubilee is really focused in on the proclamation of liberty in the New Testament. He says, the clearest reference to the Jubilee in the New Testament comes in Jesus's first synagogue sermon in Luke's gospel. According to Luke, 
Immediately after Jesus' sojourn and temptation in the desert, he returned to Galilee, quote, in the power of the Spirit. We find that in Luke 4, 14. And then began teaching in the synagogues. In the first part of the important events described in Luke 4, 16-30, Luke reports Jesus' teaching in his home city in Nazareth. So you may be familiar with this story, but it may have been a while since you've actually read through it. So I'm just going to take some time and read straight through the biblical text, and then we'll get back to some of the points Bruno makes in his article, beginning in Luke chapter 4, verse 14 and following. And Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So that from the biblical text, uh, the story goes on to say that they were pretty excited about what he had to say at the beginning, and then he challenged the people there, and they ended up trying to kill him. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) So getting back to Bruno's article, he says this, Luke reports Jesus' teaching in his home city of Nazareth. Standing to read from the scroll of Isaiah, Jesus found what we know as Isaiah 61 verses 1 and the beginning of verse 2, and he read it out loud. And just a comment I have about this, we're not completely sure, but most people think that there was a lectionary, a a way of reading through the entirety of the scriptures in a year's period of time back even in Jesus's day in the synagogue practice. And so coming to the synagogue this day, there would have been readers, several of them, that stood up and read. And it's generally understood that the practice of reading would be followed by some comments that the reader would make about the passage that he just read. And so here, what we have is Jesus being handed the Isaiah scroll, probably not because it was his choice, but probably because it was the day in the year when that scroll was to be read. So Odds are we don't have Jesus just randomly coming and picking out a random scripture. Part of God's hand on this event was that Jesus was actually handed a part of the scroll to read that he, in his public ministry, was also interacting with in a fulfillment-type way. The other thing to notice here, if that's actually what was happening, that Jesus was one of the readers of the day— his passage would have been much longer than the one and a half verses that he ended up reading. 
I mean, that just makes sense, right? If you're trying to work your way through Scripture in a year, you're going to have large sections of Scripture. So maybe it was Isaiah chapter 61 in its entirety that was on the schedule for that day. Maybe it was a little bit more, maybe a little less. But odds are, if we understand it correctly, Jesus was not just given this scroll randomly, that it was an assigned piece and that he stopped short. In so doing, he would have surprised everybody that was there. And that's probably why everybody was looking at him, expecting him to talk after he sat down, after his shortened reading. They were expecting him to make some comments on the passage from which he just read. And something else that Jesus did in this would have also caught their attention, because in addition to reading from Isaiah 61 in his short reading, Jesus adds a line from Isaiah 58, verse 6, to his proclamation. Bruno points that out in his article, and I've also heard it pointed out by Tim Mackey of Bible Project. And Tim Mackey seems to think that Jesus inserts this extra line from Isaiah 58, verse 6, into his quote of Isaiah 61. The line from chapter 58 is to set free those who are oppressed. That's what's in Isaiah 58. And it's in the context of the seventh-day Sabbath. Mackey suggests that by combining the seventh-day Sabbath context from Isaiah 58 with the Jubilee passage of Isaiah 61, Jesus is suggesting those two passages are really talking about the same thing, the ministry of rest that Jesus has come to fulfill. So those ideas from Mackey also reflect what I stated earlier, that really when we look at this theology of rest and consider the year of Jubilee, we should not be looking at Jubilee as a standalone entity, one year every 50, in other words. But we have to see it like Jesus saw it, because he's connecting the beginning of that theology out of Isaiah 58, a seventh-day Sabbath concept, in with this concept of Jubilee the end of the Sabbath road in the Mosaic Law. Back to Bruno's article. He says this, Luke only records one comment from Jesus after he gave the scroll back to the synagogue attendant. Jesus announced to the audience that Isaiah 61, and (laughs) that little part in Isaiah 58, was fulfilled in that day. So in order for us to arrive add an understanding of the New Testament's emphasis with respect to the Jubilee, we must ask, what did Jesus fulfill and how did he fulfill it? And to do so, we must first examine the Old Testament data concerning this proclamation of release in the year of Jubilee. as we jump out of the New Testament back into the Old Testament, we find, as Bruno tells us, the year of Jubilee is introduced in Leviticus 25. Although references to the Jubilee also appear in Leviticus 26 and 27, 
most of the relevant data for this study is found in chapter 25. That's Bruno's study for his article. He says, this chapter found in the midst of the holiness code begins with an explanation of Sabbath years. The basic principle of Sabbath years is found in verses 3 and 4. And it suggests that every seventh year, the people of Israel were to refrain from cultivating the land as a Sabbath to Yahweh. And following this explanation, the rest of the chapter presents a general principle for the practice of the Jubilee year. And that's followed by a series of specific instructions. So the Jubilee year, specifically, every 50th year on the Day of Atonement. So that's one of the festival days. So again, we're combining all of these ideas of rest coming out of the Mosaic Law. The Jubilee year starts on a festival day, which was also a Sabbath day. We're stacking these things, in other words, for emphasis. So every 50th year on the Day of Atonement, Israel was to sound the trumpet and declare a year of jubilee. The jubilee command, at its simplest, is found in verse 10. I'll just read that real quick. Leviticus 25.10 says, You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his own property and each of you shall return to his family. So back to Bruno's article. He says, Israel must consecrate the 50th year in order to proclaim liberty throughout the land. The nominal form, so the noun form, of liberty appears six times in the Old Testament. And apart from here in Leviticus 25.10, It also occurs in Isaiah 61.1. That's interesting. That's what Jesus read in the synagogue. Jeremiah 34.8, and again in verse 15 in Jeremiah 34, and again in verse 17. So three times there, and then again in Ezekiel 46.17. Bruno says all of these references to liberty are likely related to the Jubilee principle. Therefore, Determining the meaning of this word in Leviticus 25 is crucial. So looking at this idea of liberty, in Leviticus 25, what does it mean when liberty is used? And uh, in his article, Bruno says this, We see that in Leviticus 25, three significant procedures were associated with the year of Jubilee. First, the Sabbath rest for the land was observed. Second, the proper distribution of land among the tribes, clans, and families was to be reestablished. So land given back to the people that had originally uh, received it. Third, Israelites were to be freed from servitude that they may have been forced to submit to in the previous cycle of 49 years. And he says, in this way, the economy is reset to avoid endemic oppression. The economic effects of the Jubilee practice would have been profound. While the redemption of people and property could be practiced anytime and was primarily intended to keep land from leaving the clan, the Jubilee was only practiced every 50 years. 
and return the land to the smaller households or family units. So thus, clan lands could not be controlled by one or two powerful families. Therefore, oppression would have been severely limited. Furthermore, Yahweh's covenant stipulations for the land would have constantly been brought to mind, for every economic transaction related to land would have had to been executed in light of a coming year of Jubilee. And Bruno finishes this way, Unfortunately, however, there is little evidence that either the Sabbath years or the Jubilee were ever consistently practiced, if practiced at all. So breaking away from the article, having spent uh, several years as a real estate agent uh, for my occupation, this is fascinating to me because theoretically, at least, the exchange of property within the land of Israel would have been more of a lease situation than a sale. It would have been, at best, a 50-year lease. But if the Jubilee year theoretically was coming up in three years and I want use of the land, I could sell my land or lease my land for that three years, at the end of which it would come back to me again, at least theoretically. And again, the reason for this, we need to remember the focus. The reason is that no one group of people would end up with all the power. The classes would be regulated. And this seems to be the picture of the economy of the way God would have things done. Bruno comments this way. The reason that Israel was to treat the poor among them with compassion was not simply out of a generous spirit, but as a demonstration of their loyalty to Yahweh, their understanding of their own place as his redeemed people, and their trust in his care for them. And then Bruno interacts with this idea that the Jubilee was intended to reestablish something of the relationship that existed between humans at their creation. And he says to this, we could also add, the Jubilee may have been intended to renew other relationships as well. It seems that in Leviticus 25, the proclamation of liberty is closely related to the careful maintenance of the order that Yahweh established between his people and the land. That is to say, Liberty is the restoration of the proper order among the covenant people, the covenant land, and the covenant God. And just breaking away from the article for a second, this is a large premise in my book of Rethinking Rest, that this idea of rest, it is, as Bruno says, a restoration of the proper order of things between people that acknowledge a covenant that God has given. And in the Old Testament, that was a specific covenant with the people of Israel. But in the beginning of time, in the creation and back in Genesis, we're talking about a covenant with humanity, a set of rules and order within which this whole thing, this whole cosmos functions best the way it was intended. And Bruno points out that in Isaiah 61, the proclamation of liberty is part of a more general proclamation of Israel's restoration. And while the year of the Lord's favor probably refers to the Jubilee year, it does not seem to be confined to one year out of every 50. 
Rather, the idea, as is presented in Isaiah 61, as the year of the Lord's favor, it seems to refer to the entire new age. In other words, the ministry of Jesus moving forward. Bruno adds, it is quite clear that in Luke's account of this event, liberty is emphasized. And given the links to the Jubilee year in Isaiah 61, it is quite likely that Luke's emphasis on liberty has a similar link to the Jubilee. So that just recaps things we've already said. But then he adds this little twist at the end, and it's something I've run into as well. He says, finally, the quotation in Luke 4 ends with the mention of the Lord's favor and omits the parallel reference to retribution from the Lord found in Isaiah 61 at the end of verse 2. So what's he talking about here? This was actually first brought to my attention as I was leading a group through Israel. When we got to Nazareth, there is a place called Nazareth Village. It's a Christian organization that's put together some buildings that look like what they probably would have looked like back in Jesus's time. And they've actually built a synagogue there, and we go in and sit, and we read from Luke chapter 4, because, of course, we're in Nazareth, we're in a synagogue, one that maybe looks like the one Jesus would have been in. And it was in that setting that what Bruno just pointed out in his article was brought to my attention. If you go back to Isaiah 61, it reads this way, starting in verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And then verse 2, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus, when he quotes Isaiah in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, he not only cuts short the reading for the day, he stops mid sentence. He doesn't even finish the sentence that he's reading out of the Isaiah scroll. So as he hands that back to the attendant, it makes a whole lot more sense why everybody's eyes were just staring at what in the world is this guy doing? And it was that cutting short, it it was cutting that sentence in half that some people have come to the conclusion that this idea of jubilee that Jesus said was fulfilled that day in their hearing, that that idea of fulfillment may be the beginning of the fulfillment. Because this idea of the favorable year of the Lord is also attached to the second half of verse 2, which is the day of vengeance of our God. And some people have suggested, and I think I'm in this camp as well, that in the inauguration of Jesus's fulfillment of the Jubilee. He has come to do some things in the inauguration phase. And it will also include the second half of verse 2 before it's done. But in his first coming, that was not what Jesus was here to do. That likely is reserved for another return trip. And before we finish, if that wasn't enough, uh, there's another side note Because there are two times that Jesus quotes only a portion of this Isaiah passage within the New Testament. Luke 4 is one of those times. But in both cases, he is surgically applying 
portions of the passage that apply to different parts of his messianic ministry. So like we've said, the first example is here in Luke 4, 16 through 21, where Jesus stops mid-sentence in the passage and proclaims that his first advent fulfills that portion of the scripture, but not the next phase, the day of vengeance. That will be in his second coming. The second example that we find Jesus interacting with this Old Testament Isaiah scroll is in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. And that's when John the Baptist questions whether Jesus is the expected one, or was there someone else to come later? And it's in his response to John the Baptist that Jesus quotes part of Isaiah 35, 5, and Isaiah 61, 1, the same verse out of Isaiah, he quotes back to John the Baptist. That's how he responds back to him. And that time, Jesus reports back to John that the gospel is being preached to the poor, but he doesn't include the proclamation of liberty to the captives. And it was at that time that John was a captive. He was imprisoned for disapproving the relationship between Herod Antipas and his brother's, Herod Philip's, wife. And it's fascinating to me that Jesus does not give John the Baptist hope of release from his current circumstances. But he does give him hope of resurrection from the dead. Let me just read to you how Jesus replies to John the Baptist. Matthew 11, verse 4. Jesus answered and said to him, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. So what does this all mean? Jesus is strategically and surgically using Isaiah 61 in different contexts and including some of the information and excluding other information based on who his audience is. We can assume, can't we, that Jesus was aware of the full text and not only the full text of Isaiah 61, but the context of the Old Testament passages within the entirety of the Old Testament and that he, Jesus, and Matthew, the author of the gospel, assumed that those that received his words would understand that same context. So it's important to note what Jesus includes, and maybe just as importantly, what he excludes when he quotes scripture. And that just takes your Bible reading to a whole different level, doesn't it? Let's conclude this way. Since Jesus seems to be selectively quoting parts of this passage in different situations, some have concluded that the fulfillment that Jesus spoke of was maybe just the beginning of the process that would eventually lead to the full realization sometime in the future. Bruno interacts with that idea this way. He says, Jesus' claim to fulfill Isaiah 61 must be seen as a claim to inaugurate the eschatological jubilee of God's people, the time when their freedom from captivity and oppression would be permanent. However, as noted above, Jesus stops short of mentioning both the retribution of Yahweh 
and subsequent comfort for those who mourn in the midst of that retribution, as found in the original Isaiah 61 passage. And Bruno concludes, Therefore, it seems that the fulfillment of the Jubilee through Jesus' ministry was an inauguration, but not completion, of the eschatological Jubilee. So that's all I've got about Jubilee Jesus for today. Isn't that enough? Holy cow. (laughs) So what's a good takeaway from an episode like today's? First, I think it's really important that we just get the idea, the continuation of this idea of rest as it was presented throughout the Old Testament. It's not a piecemeal thing. It's highly interconnected theology. And so when we get to the New Testament and start reading Jesus's words, And we also start asking the question, how should we be applying this idea of rest today? We need to be seeing it as Jesus saw it, as an interconnected theology that began with this picture of one day a week of physical rest and concluded with this crazy year of jubilee where land is given back to people and slaves are released And economic scales are tipped back into balance. And what the Old Testament showed in an economic metaphor, we need to start understanding that as a spiritual reality found in Jesus. Jesus is not here to make you rich or poor. Jesus is here so that those who believe in him will follow a certain code, a covenant, a way that this whole thing was always meant to be. And thank God that we don't have to come up with that, right? Because we've seen what humanity does when we try and come up with our own way of doing things. It just doesn't seem to work very well at all. Well, that's really all I've got for today. (laughs) And thanks again for listening. If there's somebody that you think might enjoy some of the content that we discussed today, I would really appreciate it if you would introduce those types of people to the Rethinking Scripture podcast.